Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place, and we thank you for the privilege of holding the Word of God in our laps. Thank you, Lord, that we can look at the ministry and the life of Jesus while he lived here on this earth and see his passion for the glorification of God. And I pray that in our lives as well, the glory of your name would be the passion of this church, as we just sang. God, that you would be well honored in this place and by your people. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, here in this hour, and that we would not leave this place the same as when we came in. That we would be all the more in love with you as we see your love for us. Father, I pray that you would help me to speak well. Help me not to lead anyone astray to the right or to the left. Help me to rightly divide your word. And God, bless this time as we glorify your name in Jesus. Amen. So we we saw the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus at the beginning of chapter 2 in the book of John last week. And he performs, he goes to Cana, he performs this awesome miracle. He's like there, he's there and he's putting his stamp of approval on the the idea of of marriage and and the idea of joy. Because this, as we read about wine in the Word of God, it's a symbol for joy. And he's saying, I'm coming and I'm changing the normal, the, the, the bland, if you want to call it, the basic into something joyful. And that's what his ministry was about. Now what I like about the way John writes is, as we read the coming up story, and what's, what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter, it's, it's, it, it sounds like two different Jesuses almost. But that's who, as we study the chapter, is who we're going to find out. This is who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, in a, in a Methodist church, and every Methodist church has to have a flannel graph. All right, are you familiar with what the flannel graph is? You remember it in Sunday school. It's a green board about this big, covered in flannel, and then they would cut out little felt people, yeah. right? And then they would throw them up on the flannel graph, and they would stick there. And it was always Jesus had the nice sandals on, and he was always dressed in plaid like he came out of a 90s grunge band or something. <laughs> and, and he's hanging out there, but he's got the big smile on his face, and, and he, he's almost, on the flannel graph, he's almost effeminate. He's, he's, he looks like a, a, a sissy. And, and that's not who Jesus was, and we're going to find that out today. He, he wasn't effeminate. He's a, he's a carpenter's son. He's got strong hands. He's got a strong body and a strong mind. And, and, and so we're going to get a different side to Jesus today than the, the flannel graph perhaps we're, we're used to. But he's, he's righteous in everything that he does as we study today, okay? We're going to pick it up in verse 12. John 2, verse 12. After this, this being the miracle of the the water into wine, after this he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we need to pause there and just kind of fill in, uh, paint the picture a little bit. So he leaves Cana, he goes down to Capernaum. It says, John says, we spent a few days there, but the Passover feast was coming. We're still in the first month of Jesus's ministry. And he's like, hey, the Passover's coming, let's head to Jerusalem. Well, what's all that about? Well, we need to kind of fill that in a little bit. In that, well, to today even, but in that day, they would celebrate every year the Passover feast. It was a memorial. It was a celebration. It was a a remembrance of what God had done on the Israelites' behalf to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. As, As Moses 
was chosen by God to lead them out uh, from the tyranny of, of Egypt, the way God did that was through 10 different miracles, 10 different uh, demonstrations of power, 10 different plagues. And each time Pharaoh would say, you guys go ahead and go. And then he would relent and say, no, never mind. You come on back. And finally, the 10th plague came and, and that was the death angel. And so God prepared the Israelites before the 10th plague happened. And he said, hey, go slaughter a, a, a lamb and, and, and take the blood and paint it on your doorpost so that when the death angel passes over, thus the name Passover, when the death angel passes over your, your house, it will literally pass over your house. And what happened in that night, the night that they were liberated, is any door that didn't have the blood on it, that household had somebody die. And, and so they woke up the next morning and everybody, uh, every Egyptian had a family member that passed away. The, the son, the firstborn son of every household was killed by the death angel. And so Pharaoh finally says, fine, go, go have your way. And they do, and they leave and they liberate. And so now they're in the wilderness and Moses is establishing them as a, as a country and he, or as a, a nation rather. Um, they're in the wilderness for a time. They mess all that up and you guys, you guys are familiar with the story, right? And so, but he says every year at this time, let's celebrate, let's remember what God has done on our behalf. And so and that's what they're doing in the day of Jesus. Now they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so this was a, a massive memorial, a massive celebration. It was literally a week long feast at the time. Jerusalem was probably actually a big city for the day of a hundred thousand people. That was, that was a large city in those days. At the time of Passover, everybody went to Jerusalem. And so that would grow to 10 times that size, a million people there in Israel or there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. So as Jesus is going, picture Mall of America on Black Friday. Okay, it's wall-to-wall -wall people. You're bumping shoulders with everybody. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus heads into that throng. And as he heads to the temple, it says in verse 14, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. All right, so we need to explain what's going on here. As they came to the temple, they would come as a family with a sacrifice in order to atone for sin. And that's the, the, the method that they had set up in that day. That's the way sins were atoned for. And so every family would come with their sacrifice and come to the temple to, to receive their forgiveness. Well, the way the temple was set up, there was actually four different courts as you walked into the temple, and each court kind of filtered out who was allowed to go on farther. The, the first court was the court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would come, and that was as far as they could go. It's in that court that these oxen and doves and sheep and money changers were set up. The next court would have been the court of the Jews, and then so anybody that was Jewish was allowed to go into that second court. The third court would have been the court of the men. From that point forward, the men go forward. And the fourth being the court of the priests. Okay, but it's in the in the in the very first court, then the court of the Gentiles, that these people are set up. Let me explain what's going on in case you're you're not familiar with it. They would, as you came, and you and your family, your wife and your kids, and you have your little lamb, Fluffy. And you're there to sacrifice Fluffy. You've raised him from birth, and, and, and you, this is the lamb that you have come to know and love. You, you, you want to sacrifice because you want forgiveness of sin. So you come to the temple, and you stop there in the court of the Gentiles, and you say, all right, 
we're here. This is, this is, we're, we're ready to sacrifice Fluffy. And there's people there that would say, oh, well, welcome. We're glad you're here. And, uh, well, he sure is cute. He, he looks pretty good, but, uh, you see that right there? You see how his, how his ear is bent? I, I hate to break this to you, but you're, that's a blemish sacrifice, and that's not worthy to be offered here on the temple on the temple to our God. So you go ahead and take Fluffy home. You go ahead and 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 what we have here is, as you can see, is we have some already pre-approved animals that, that the court the, the the priests have pre-approved, and you're welcome to buy one here. Normally they're about what ten shekels. Well, they're a little bit more than that because they're pre-approved. They're about a hundred shekels, ten times the amount. I said, get the picture of a used car salesman. And first service, Dave Graff sitting right there, who is a used car salesman. <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, um, not like Dave. Buy your cars from Dave. I buy my cars from Dave. Dave is a good guy. He's not your typical used car salesman. But envision that here in this place. We've got the best of the sheep here for you. Check, kick the tires. Go ahead. And you're welcome to buy one. It's just a merely 100 shekels. And so you go, wow, that's really expensive. But if that's the way I get forgiveness of sin, then that's what I got to do. And so you reach into your pocket and you pull out your money to hand them 100 shekels. And they go, oh, uh, um, we, we can't take that money here. Um, it's, it's got Herod's picture on it. And, and we don't, that's not worthy of our God. And so you need to take that money over here to this table where they will exchange your money for you. And it's not a one-to-one -one ratio, I'm sorry to say. It's more like a one-to-1.5 ratio or somewhere in there. And, and so for every dollar you spend, you're going to get about 80 cents back, maybe 75 cents back, maybe 50 cents back. It depends on the day. Now that we're closer to Passover, it's about, oh, you get 10 cents on the dollar. So you're paying 10 times as much for your, pre, for your sheep. You're getting only 10 cents on the dollar for the exchange of your money. And that's what was going on in the temple court, in the, in the court of the Gentiles. Every person that came in, every, every animal that they brought, there was a defect with. And so they had to buy their, their oxen, their sheep, their doves there, and they had to exchange their money. And so as a million people are coming in, the people in the temple are like, we could pad our pockets pretty well here. And so they take advantage of it. And this is the scene now that Jesus rolls up on. All right? This is where he's at, okay? So it says in verse 15, When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. What I want to see in this moment is that, first of all, it's not your effeminate flannel graph Jesus, is it? Jesus is angry over this. Jesus is upset over this. But what I want us to see is that it wasn't simply a blind rage. This wasn't just Jesus rolling on the scene and going spastic and, and, and losing control and, 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 and is out of control. How do we know that? Because he makes a whip of cords. He, he pauses long enough to consider his actions and to think about the things he's doing, and he takes the cords that, they, they, that are holding the animals and he braids them together. And that doesn't just happen real quickly. It's not, so he's not acting in a blind rage. 
And on top of that, he doesn't just go crazy and start killing animals and start beating people up. He is very cautious about how all this goes down. He kicks them out. He, he sends the oxen away. He sends the sheep away. He doesn't even toss the tables before the doves are removed. He takes the time to tell them, get these doves out of here. Had he tossed the tables first, the doves would have died in the cage. But he doesn't do that. It's not a blind rage. This is a calculated righteous indignation. And so everything he does, he's doing without sin, and it's all well thought out. And, and, and then the purpose is so that the house would be cleansed. I love that these two stories, the changing of the water to the wine, is, is paired with this in chapter 2 of John, is paired with the, the tossing of the temple tables of the, the righteous indignation because we see both sides of Jesus. First, he does come to bring joy and to bring life and to bring happiness into our lives, to bring that joy that, that, that wine represents. But Jesus is also bringing a judgment. He's coming back. The, the first time he came, he came and he brought joy. He brought life. But he is coming back, and that time he's coming back is for the purpose of judgment. He's coming with a sword, it says. And, and so we see that in, the, in this, first he comes with joy. First he comes with the redemption. Then he is coming with judgment. You could also look at it this way, and I like this too. First, first is the conversion, and second is the cleansing. And that's the way it happens in my life, and that's the way it happens in your life. First, we're converted, just like the water changed to wine. We, we are converted. We are changed. We are saved by His grace. And then comes the cleansing. It's after that we have given our hearts to Christ. It's after that he, we have been saved in Him that He begins to clean us up. Jesus doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up in the sink before we go take a shower. He He... He says, no, let me save you. Let me pull you out. Let me set your feet on the rock. Let me take you out of the miry clay. And then we'll start to cleanse you. And that's the way it happens here in chapter 2 too, two as well. First the conversion, then the cleansing. The question is why? As, as Jesus comes on the scene, why, why does he do this? Why does he grab the cord? Why does he make the whip? Why does he turn the tables? Why does he dump out the money? And the answer is, Jesus, well, it says it, I'm sorry, verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So they see Jesus and they see him do these things. And can you imagine being a disciple at this point? They've been hanging with him for a couple weeks. And all of a sudden he's going in and getting in trouble, it looks like to them. I mean, you don't just go into the temple and change everything. You can't do that. So I wonder what they're thinking as all this is going on. But as they do, they're like, hey, I know I'm just a, a fisherman, but uh, I know a little bit of the Scripture, and I remember the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 69, somewhere around verse 9. They didn't have the numbers then, but let's just go with me. They, they said, you know, it says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And I know that that Psalm, Psalm 69, is talking about the Savior. And we really believe that this guy is the Savior, even though we've only been with him a few weeks. So look at how Jesus is fulfilling the Messianic prophecy and, 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 and the zeal for his house, for the temple, has eaten him up. He's, he's setting these things right. Why is Jesus so upset at this? Because anytime anybody stands in the way of somebody coming to God, Jesus gets upset about that. We see it here in the temple tables, and he, and he, in fact, he does it twice in his ministry. 
we, if you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that toward the end of his public ministry, as he's headed toward the cross, this event happens again where he goes into the table or into the temple and they're back. And, the, and, and so he, he does the same thing. He tosses the table. He sends everybody out. He quotes a different scripture. That's why we know there are two different events. This at the beginning of his ministry, those at the end of his ministry. But he doesn't want people to stand in the way of people coming to God. And that's why he stops them. And that's really what they're doing. I'm sorry, here in the court of the Gentiles, you really can't go any further unless you take care of these things. And they block the path to God. He does it. You recall when the disciples, a bunch of kids running around. You know how kids are. A bunch of kids running around and they're like, ah, get out of here, get out of here. And, and, and they're trying to get to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Ah, 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 ah. Let, let the little children come to me. Do, do not hinder them from coming to me. In fact, for those that do hinder these children from coming unto me, it'd be better that a millstone would be tied around his neck and he thrown into the sea. We, you guys heard the, no, the, the, the story, Adrian Peterson's son? Uh, wife's boyfriend abused Adrian Peterson's son so bad this week that he died. Two years old. As I read that, I thought, I think an appropriate judgment for this guy is a millstone. And that's me and my flesh. And, and certainly the grace of God is extended to this man as much as it is to me. But it just breaks my heart that our world is that perverted that that happens. But he, Jesus says, let them come to me. It'd be better if a millstone... That's a, that's a painful, that's a gruesome, that's a heavy death. Can you imagine sitting on the side of a ship and here? Right? And there's no hope of you coming up. You can't swim outswim the rock. In this day, in this age, in, in, in church today, there are there are wolves out there that claim to be churches that are hindering people from coming to God. And for those of you who have walked with me for two years on Wednesday nights, you know my passion against the prosperity gospel. I cannot stand that people stand behind a pulpit and say, you can buy God. And they are hindering people from coming to the Lord. And so nothing new is under the sun. But we see the times that Jesus gets angry, and righteously so, is when people are hindered from coming to God. We don't want to do that in our lives. Verse 18. All this has gone down, and, and the Jews are sitting there watching it. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Notice they didn't try to stop him. <laughs> he's got a whip in his hand. He's got, you know, the calluses upon calluses because he's a tough guy. And, 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 and so they're like, well, you just go right ahead and when you're done, we'll talk to you. <laughs> and they do. Who gave you the right? Jesus? What's going on here? Jesus answers them and said to them, verse 19, you want a sign? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
Then the Jews said, laughingly, I would imagine, (laughs) it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So as they stand there in the temple courts, there's this beautiful, ornate building behind them that that has taken 46 years to build. It's actually going to take another 18 or so to complete. 18,000 men employed in the making of this one building, Herod's temple, so ornately laid out in gold, just absolutely beautiful. They say that there were rocks there, 120 tons, 240,000 pound pieces of rock put together. Now think about that. They didn't have cranes. How do you move a 240,000 pound rock without cranes? That's why there was 18,000 men employed. (laughs) But they said it was so perfectly built and so ornately built that, that as they placed these giant cornerstone rocks together, that they were so well milled that you couldn't put a piece of paper between the cracks. They, they fit so well together, there wasn't even enough room to, to slide in a piece of paper. Just decked out, wonderfully made, beautifully made. And, the, and Jesus says, tear down this temple, in three days I'll build it again. And they look at this building and go, you're, you're crazy, dude. But I would, and, and I bet they missed this. I almost think that Jesus probably even pointed to himself. Build down, the, tear down this temple. I don't know that for sure. But they're they're obviously more enamored with the building than they are with the man. Dangerous place to be. But notice what he says in verse verse 20 there, um, or 21. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I want us to note that because it's important for us as Bible students to note that. The question will come then, who raised Jesus from the dead? Who raised Jesus from the dead? It says it right there. He did. You're welcome to try that. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Jesus raised himself from the dead. He goes on to say in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus raised himself from the dead. Defeating sin. Defeating death. Resurrecting to life. And that's why his rightful place is at the right hand of the Father. His name is above all names. And so he speaks of himself. No, destroy this temple. I like that, that he calls himself even now the temple because what was the intent and the purpose of the temple in that day? Why was Herod's temple there? Why were these people coming during Passover? So that they might receive redemption, so that they might receive forgiveness of sin. That's what happened at the temple. And now Jesus is saying, no, 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 destroy this temple because that's what I'm here for too. I'm here to to pay the price. And as he cried out on the cross to pay it fully, It is finished is what he cried. That means the price has been exacted, paid in full. I am becoming the temple. I am the redemption of sin. Now what's interesting about that, as he said that, I'm sure his disciples started scratching their head and going, "What, what, what are you talking about? But he says in verse 22, they do eventually figure it out. 
Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. (laughs) As we go through the Gospel of John, it's a lot of fun to make fun of the disciples. One thing you have to recognize is, I'm just as dumb as they are. (laughs) We all are. We all put our foot in our mouth. We all do stupid things. We all act like Peter at times. We all don't realize what God is doing when he's doing it. Sometimes it takes us three years to figure it out just like it did them. But we'll laugh at them as long as we can laugh at ourselves as well. But they eventually figured it out three years later. Hey, oh yeah, remember he said, oh yeah, light bulb, right? (laughs) What What show is that? So, yeah, okay, despicable me, right? Light bulb. Never mind. (laughs) Let's finish the chapter. He says something interesting. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all of them, all men, and had no need that anybody should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. It's an interesting thing. These, these people come and they see Jesus performing these miracles, and as they see Jesus performing their miracles, he, they believe in Him, but it's based on what they, what's been done. And what He's saying here, what I think He's saying, at least to my heart and hopefully to yours as well, is it's okay to believe in miracles. It's okay that God, to believe in God who does miracles. But the greater belief would be, rather than believing in what he does, it would be believing in who he is. You see, if, if you place all of your faith in, in the fact that Jesus performed a miracle in your life, the next time you go to him and ask for a miracle, maybe he's going to say no. And when he does that, he's no longer your genie in a bottle and he gets upset, or you get upset at him. But rather, if we place our faith or we place our belief in who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, that he came to, to, to this earth to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death, that you and I might have redemption, that belief is unshakable. Whether the miracle happens in your life or not, he is still God and he is still in control. So it's interesting that he closes with that note. I love this chapter, the chapter 2, the, the juxtaposition between Jesus turning water to wine and also Jesus tossing the temple tables. We see both sides of a very real, very loving God. And so then the question would come as we close, then Jesus is coming back and he's coming to bring the judgment of God. The, the, and it's a calculated thing. This isn't just going to be God flying off the handle and saying, go get them, I've had enough. It's calculated, just like it was in this story. The question then is, have you received the joy that he offers to you first? And that joy is in accepting him as your Savior, recognizing the work that he's done on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. When, then when that day comes, when the judgment comes, We don't stand before a righteous God who's ready to pour out his wrath upon us, and rightfully so, we deserve the wrath of God. We don't stand before him based on our merit and say, didn't I do enough? We stand before him and we say, I plead the blood of Jesus. And he'll look at us through the lens of Jesus' blood, and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord.
And that's the forgiveness that's offered for you and I through the act of the cross. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Let's stand. Let's close. Lord God, I am so grateful for this church and the people of this church, Lord, that you have knit our faith family together, God. And this is all designed by your hand. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to love and to serve. And Lord, before these people, I say to you, I want to devote my life, as Acts 6-4 would say, to the ministry of the Word and to prayer, that I might lead these people well, Father. God, that all of us together would break down these walls that hold us and that we would become salt. No, we we are salt and light, but that we would live that way in this dark and dying world that we would make an impact on our community and on our city and on our state and on this country, God, because of the power of your Spirit, not in our own strength. May we bless your name. May we glorify your name. And may the passion of your name be what this church is all about. I love you, Lord. We want to live to worship you as we're about to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.